man, I am so thankful that uh, God had placed Mindy and I in a church where we could worship the Lord with good music, good worship, and uh, it's a blessing. Amen. Uh, we, we might be spoiled a little bit, Don, and, um, because there's a lot of churches today that uh, don't have this kind of uh, musicianship and vocalist to facilitate worship like this. And, uh, and so just very, very thankful for uh, all of you who sing and prepare weekly. Uh, may the Lord bless you as you facilitate worship for us. God bless you. I, uh, I love Christmas, and um, one of my concerns is that the Christmas story that we're all familiar with, that we've been singing about for the last several weeks, for many of us, we, we grow up and hear this story, we, we learn of it early, um, and we know it frontwards, backwards, and it becomes very familiar to us. And over a period of time, it loses its awe. It's no longer um, mysterious. It loses a sense of wonder. And it's possible that over a period of time, we just become so familiar to, to the story that it becomes mundane. We don't really feel any sense of passion over it. And, and a lack of passion there would result in a lack of continued uh, character transformation that, that God would bring through his word. And so I, I certainly think that happens uh, to us, especially if you grow up and you know the Bible, you're, you're raised in church, and then you get out on your own, you start living in the world, and you no longer are reading your Bible, and you're being inundated with ideas and ideologies and theories that begins to criticize faith and criticize the church and undermine truth. And then what can happen is we begin to entertain doubts, begin to question our faith, question the validity of the gospel, question its exclusivity, and we begin to drift. And there is no longer character formation. Christ is not working in us like he once did. And I think that happens a lot. Uh, to people in the body of Christ. And, and so Luke, I invite you to open with me to the story of Christ's birth. It seems appropriate that we would look at this. We began a few weeks ago just going back and re-looking at this story, the basics, Mary and the Annunciation and how the angel Gabriel comes to her and lets her know she's been favored, chosen, graced by God to serve as the mother of the Messiah. And so God works, continues to work in Mary's life after that delivery of that message to produce certainty in her life, certainty. She is certain that God is at work. And then we saw then God begins to work in Joseph's life and speaks to him through a dream. And you remember, he, he, he's doubtful of Mary's story, but God works in such a way, delivers his word and at the end of the day, he also comes to a point, a place of certainty regarding everything that Mary has been telling him. And so we come to Luke chapter 2, to the actual birth that Luke records with certainty the facts surrounding the, 
historical reality of this birth. And so I invite you to read with me in Luke chapter 2, starting at the first verse. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed the wife who is with child. And so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Would you pray very briefly with me? God, we bow before you, acknowledging you to be the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and present with us through your Spirit. We ask that you would speak through this familiar story to restore to us passion for what you have done in the incarnation of your son to bring forth a revived, restored faith to your people and that you would produce with certainty a conviction that we have regarding the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at this story, just these seven verses that Luke provides regarding the birth of Christ, are there any impressions, anything that stands out with these verses? Well, let me share a few of mine. One impression is Luke needs only seven verses to describe it. That's not very much. A hundred, I counted them up, 135 verses totaled to tell the story of the incarnation. This is how the Messiah was born. So seven verses to describe that. Second impression. Luke describes it in somewhat of an ordinary way. If you read this, this birth sounds like any other birth, any other kind of birth that's described. Earlier in chapter one, you remember Luke describes Mary's conception, which was very out of the ordinary, very extraordinary. From verses 30 through 35, an angel appears to her, and just to just to read this, how supernatural this is, go back, chapter 1, look at verse 30. An angel says to her, Mary, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And not only will your son be great, See the throne of his father David. Look at verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there'll be no end. And Mary questions this in verse 7, 37. How, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I've never known a man. And the angel answers and says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That description is pretty extraordinary. 
pretty supernatural, pretty miraculous, pretty amazing. Luke's, but this description here of his birth is pretty ordinary. Not, not, a, not a lot of things in this that could make it much different from other things. If you read this account, again, Luke doesn't invest a lot of words to describe it. He doesn't mention anything extraordinary. And, and it's kind of amazing, the most epic event in human history, Luke describes in a very economical way. One commentator noted on these, this birth narrative that Luke's description of Jesus' birth is remarkably unremarkable. If I was writing the story, I probably would have tried to add some flair to it, but which just contributes to the point that it's not concocted. Go back to Luke's purpose for writing the gospel in the first four verses of chapter one. That's his introduction. And his introduction is direct, it's pointed. He is a doctor, and good doctors are given to details. For example, if you're ill and you visit a doctor, he or she will begin by asking you some questions, asking you to describe symptoms, and then they will listen well. And their aim in all of that is to gather all of the facts, to put it all together, to assess it in order to make a diagnosis. Luke's a physician. He said, that's what I set out to do. And he describes that in an orderly series of facts, gather information, doing research. He says, interviewing eyewitnesses. Who do you think the eyewitnesses were that Luke examined in order to write this narrative? Well, I think he probably would have gone back to the, the original apostles and would have asked them to give an account. Perhaps he went to visit Zacharias and Elizabeth, and perhaps he went to visit and talk to Mary and Joseph, and he gathers all of this information, puts all of it together, all of the facts, and he writes this out, compiling, putting in all in order a true historical account of what happened. And if you, in the original, the first four verses in the introduction, they're all one long, continuous sentence, very, very carefully constructed with an aim to inspire what? He says, certainty to a man named Theophilus and to all future Theophiluses like us, that we would be certain, that we would know the facts surrounding the birth of Christ and would be certain. Luke, Luke has no interest in providing religious theory or religious concepts Rather, it's an honest account of the actual historical events and facts surrounding the birth of Christ. And he says, there is certainty, certainty in what I'm saying. You and I as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ don't claim to know everything. We don't espouse to have all the answers to everything in life. However, we do possess certainty regarding Jesus. We are certain of his birth, of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, and one day we are certain that he is coming again. And this certainty that we possess is the result of faith in Christ that has brought spiritual transformation to our lives and continues to bring transformation. Therefore, like Luke, we are certain regarding who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did, and what he promises. 
And for those who were not certain in Luke's day, and for those who lack certainty today, he puts it all together in order that they would know the birth, the certainty regarding the history of this. And so I just want to walk through this and then make some comments at the end. So with your Bible open, first Luke, in verse 2 verses, records the history of Jesus' birth and says it was politically reliable. Jesus' birth occurred in a political context. Luke records his birth occurred during the days of Caesar Augustus, who ruled the Roman world for 44 years, from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D. His reign became known as Pax Romanus, or literally means a time of peace. His name was actually Caesar Octavian, and he became the first Caesar to receive the title Augustus. Augustus means holy or revered one. It was a title in that culture that was Augustus. It was reserved only for the gods. And so it is a historical fact throughout the Roman Empire that on September 23rd, there was an adoption that was made the first day of the new year, and it became the celebration that marked Caesar as Augustus. Caesar was marked as a god, hailed as their savior. While politically that was going on, Luke provides a contrast. And while the world was heralding Caesar Octavian politically as Augustus, as a god, God brings forth another savior, one foretold to save the nations from their sins, one whose kingdom would never end. Gabriel says to Mary, and his reign shall be forever and ever. It was Caesar Octavian who issued the decree that this taxation census take place. Verse 2, it occurs politically when Quirinius was governing Syria. All of this can be documented historically. And verse 3 adds that everyone I legally was required to go back to their place of birth, to the place of their origin. And so the point is the birth of Jesus Christ was set in real historical terms, political terms, political terms that can all be verified. One commentator noted the baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, not a man who would become a god, but far greater, the true God who would become a man. Not only was it politically, historically accurate, but it was geographic, geographically required. If you notice in verses 3 through 5, this meant that Mary and Joseph, living to the north in Galilee, in, the, in Nazareth, would be required to travel 80 miles south on foot to a different place, to Judea, to Bethlehem. That's where Joseph was born, in the city of David, in Bethlehem. Do you remember much about Bethlehem in your biblical history, spiritual history? Bethlehem literally meant the house of bread. It was the place, you remember, where Naomi and Elimelech started out, and then they left, and later Naomi comes back to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Bethlehem was the city of David. It was where the prophet Samuel went to visit Jesse to select one of his sons as a king, and he finds this young, suntanned lad named David. That occurred in Bethlehem. 
700 years prior to this birth, prior to this political decree issued by Caesar Augustus, that this census, that this taxation would occur. 700 years prior to that, the prophet Micah declares, but you, O Bethlehem, you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, that means this city was inconsequential, it was insignificant, but from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth one who will rule Israel. That occurred 700 years before this political decree was ever made. And since its issue, this young couple remained betrothed. Mary and Joseph, they stick together, and geographically, they're forced to travel 80 miles from the north, south to Bethlehem, further fulfilling God's decree from the prophet Micah, this ruler, is not to be born in Nazareth. This ruler will be born in Bethlehem. You read this story, Mary, Mary and Joseph are not helpless pawns. They're not just caught up in unforeseen circumstances. God is moving them with every detail of their lives under his control. Jesus' birth was geographically determined from years before. And so here in primitive conditions in the winter on a cold night, the Lord Jesus Christ entered into this world surrounded by animals tethered to stalls. Mary there with only Joseph attending. He probably cried as much as Mary, watching her writhe in pain along with the shame of not being able to provide in a better way for her as a husband. Jesus' birth was accompanied with sweat and pain and blood. His birth was accompanied with the smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and straw. Joseph there, attending with cold, trembling hands, grasped the God's son, slippery with blood, as his last, his first cries pierced the cold night. The Son of God leaving the splendor and glory of heaven, diving headlong into a huddle of barnyard animals. Nothing could have been geographically lower. And in verse 7, Mary wipes this baby clean and wraps him in swaddling cloths. It's a picture of a pauper's birth. The geographical place where Christianity began. And it's never changed. That's the same place where the Christian life begins today. When you and I come to a sense of our own need of God, an awareness of our own insufficiency and our poorness of spirit, where we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt before God, condemned in our sins, unable to do anything to bring ourselves into a right position and a right standing with God, spiritually bankrupt, that's when Christianity begins. And I want to say to you, that's where it continues to flourish. Finally, for Mary and Joseph, the history of Jesus' birth was socially rewarding. Look at verses 6 and 7. It all came true. God did exactly as he said he would do was faithful to his word. 
leading up to this, during these previous months of this time of pregnancy, Mary and Joseph, they were alone. Just the two of them, the two of them against all odds. The two of them against all of the opposing opinions of family and friends and judgments and criticisms as she began to show, began to show before they were ever legally wed and in a wedding ceremony before they had ever come together. And so with all the opinions and criticisms and judgments they must have experienced and looks of shame and ridicule and humiliation, Mary, a young teen, very ordinary in her own eyes. Joseph, a tradesman, a carpenter, a laborer. Peasants, poor folks, most likely uneducated, perhaps in their mind insignificant nobodies. But they were certain, they were sure of something. They were certain regarding God's call upon their lives. They were sure of God's word to them. And during a time of testing and hardship that they go through, they stick together. They cling to each other and rely upon one another and they trust God. And they're determined to live on mission with God. And I want to propose to you it had to be a rewarding partnership. And it remains socially true today. Whenever a husband and a wife are surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and they live to serve him, they will discover a rewarding, fulfilling, purposeful, rich life. Not an easy life. The disciples' life is never intended to be the easy life, but the rich life, the purposeful life, the meaningful life, the rewarding life. And I want to give you a heads up. If you surrender your life to King Jesus and fully yield to him, like Joseph and Mary, completely seeking to sell out to him, Lord, we are your servants. Let it be unto us according to your word. You should expect blessings, lots of blessings, but you should also expect and not be surprised by criticism, by being misunderstood, and certainly not surprised by being inconvenienced but you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And at the end of the day, to remember that God is the one who has called you and God is the one that you need to try by the best of your ability to please. You'll never, you'll never please everyone. You'll never please every person. You're called to please the Lord and to walk with him. The birth of Jesus Christ was politically reliable. It was geographically required, and it was socially rewarding. It was meaningful and purposeful. The birth of Jesus Christ historically is certain. It is verifiable. It's been verified over and over again, and that's, that's Luke's point. In these seven verses, that's the main point, all of which I would say today is valued less and less by our culture. Because our day today is such that discounts any kind of certainty regarding the gospel, discounting any kind of certainty regarding Jesus. The opposition today will come from reasonable people, often intelligent, educated people. 
The culture says if you are reasonable, if you are logical, you could never believe in a Jesus as the Bible describes. I was thinking about the increasing number of those worldwide who can today consider themselves to be atheists. The highest concentration is in China, second highest concentration in Sweden, and good old U.S. is trying to keep pace. It's growing. The Barner Research has estimated that 10% of all Americans today will proudly say they're atheists. And they estimate another, there's probably another 10% who are, but just don't want to come out and admit it. So we began to think about that a little bit and went back and started reading and researching. And it was in 1674 that the first published atheistic writings occurred by a, a German philosopher named Matthias Knudsen. And then in the late 1800s, another German philosopher, some of you have heard of him, Friedrich Nitzke, who produced the book God is Dead and proudly accepted the title as the father of atheist existentialism. In our day, the two most prominent atheists are Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. I shared, I've got one of Hitchens' books Titled the book, bought it a couple years ago, Our God, or it's, or it's not Our God, it says God is not so great. That's the title of his book, and I wanted to read it. I read through it and wanted to understand his logic as an atheist of why he would deny the existence of God, and as I read the book, I was surprisingly shocked by much of his rationale, much of it that I began to agree with. Some of his observations about the church and why people don't believe in God. And, but his rationale was distorted and I strongly disagreed with his final conclusion. Because if anything, his logic and his observations only serve to verify God's existence all the more. And of course, most of you have heard of the British biologist and evolutionist Richard Dawkins who strongly criticizes creationism and intelligent design. I'm sure all of our young people know who Richard Dawkins is. And in his book, The God of Delusion, Dawkins contends a supernatural creator certainly does not exist. And any belief in a personal God qualifies a person as delusional, which he goes on to define as a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. And while Dawkins' views are so disturbing as well as the evil influence that Dawkins has had on the minds of millions and millions of students today, creating doubt about the gospel, creating doubt about Christianity and the Bible, What's so interesting is the man who most influ strongly influenced Dawkins was a Dutch biologist, an evolutionist named Nicholas Tinbergen, who during his entire research and teaching career strongly espoused atheistic views. However, during Tinbergen's latter years, he began to suffer from severe, severe depression and feared being left alone by himself due to suicidal, suicidal inclinations. And so before his death, this was the man who most influenced Dawkins. Before Tinbergen's death, 
something remarkable occurred. He began to reformulate his ideas and views regarding evolution and began writing and talking more about the reality of divine intelligence. And while nothing is ever chronicled regarding his coming to faith in God, his mental condition before his death improved before dying of a stroke in 1988. It's also intriguing to me that Richard Dawkins and many other atheists never address in any retail, any real detail, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know at 78 years of age, Dawkins, for some unknown reason, in 2019 published a new book entitled Outgrowing God and made a surprisingly strong argument in his book claiming evidence for Jesus being a real historical figure It was very convincing to Dawkins. And while Dawkins, since the age of 15, had been aggressively denying God's existence at the good old age of 75, begins new research for some unknown reason. And at the age of 78, publishes this book and begins making the case that his latest research demonstrates that much of the New Testament is reliable although he still holds that much of it remains steeped in myth and legend. I find that interesting. And my questions are, why would the man who mentored Dawkins begin turning towards intelligent design before his death and begin to experience some peace? And why would Richard Dawkins in his late 70s begin studying and researching the Bible? concluding that much of it seems reliable and that Jesus indeed was a real historical figure who taught and lived exactly as the Bible says. Why would he begin to present evidence to believe the Bible in any way? I can tell you what my theory, what my opinion is. I think Dawkins and Tim Burgeon in their old age were troubled And had some regrets, perhaps not so sure anymore as they had purported to deny God's existence, realizing that evolutionary theory has too many gaps and honestly begin to go back and re-examine the Bible. And in a quest before they die, began feeling led to reconsider Jesus, realizing they possess no certainty about their own lives about their own origin, about their own purpose, and about their own destiny. Did you know that C.S. Lewis was once a proud atheist? He spent the first 30 years of his life denying God's existence, but later stated through logic and reasoning, he came to believe that there must be some kind of God and initially moved to become a deist. And finally, through his continued study and seeking, A friend named J.R.R. Tolkien led him to faith in Christ. And later, regarding his faith in Christ and his new life, I quote, this is what Lewis wrote. I believe in Jesus Christ as I believe in the Son, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's the message of the gospel. That through faith in Jesus Christ, you find life. Jesus said, apart from me, there is no life. John 10, and through me you'll find life and life abundant. 
Luke gathers the facts. He finds eyewitnesses who walk with Jesus. He interviews people and gathers it all together into an orderly account for us so that men like Theophilus then and for men to come could have certainty regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also chimed in on this matter, certainty. And you know that Paul said the reason that he believed in the gospel and the reason that he believed in Christ was through the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul also wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 1. He said, and no man comes to know Christ through their own intellect, through their own knowledge and intellect and reason for all of man's foolishness. Our wisdom is still as foolishness before God. And he goes on in chapter 2 and says the natural, the natural mind can't receive, can't comprehend the things of God unless God reveals it to them. I'm concerned I'm concerned that we as the church today know these stories of Christmas, know Bible stories, and yet we fail to read our Bibles and fail to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, and we go out in culture and we live and be, over a period of time, our faith begins to weaken. We no longer trust God like we once trusted God. And we no longer believe what God said to Mary that with God nothing is impossible. We begin to doubt and question things. I wonder how many young people who have grown up in Hillcrest Church and other churches, Baptists, no Bible stories and go away to college and stop reading their Bibles and stop spending time with God and they start being inundated with ideas and philosophies and Truths, supposed truths that undermine the Bible and they begin to weaken in their faith and entertain doubts and drift from Christ and drift from the church and no longer believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. They lose a passion. Pathos, they lose a passion for God and his word and as a result, they lose ethos. There's no longer spiritual character being formed in their lives. God wants you and I to be certain, to have conviction, conviction in Christ, conviction in the gospel, this conviction that we would, we would die, we would lay our lives down, we would, there's no way we would recant and deny these truths. Timbergen and Dawkins, in my opinion, Perhaps we're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I wish for Dawkins' sake, it's too late for Tinbergen, but for Dawkins' sake and for the glorious change that his confession could have for the gods. Could you imagine if Richard Dawkins came out today and says, I was wrong, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I realize and believe the gospel is true. Can you imagine the shakeup that that would have in our world? It's that, it's that big. I pray that he would humble himself like a little child and recognize that all of his great intellect and learning and biology knowledge is as foolishness before the creator and would bow and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior and find new life and have new impact for the kingdom. I pray that Luke's historical account of the birth of Jesus Christ would provide you with certainty 
as you worship and as you celebrate Christmas this year, that you would have no doubts, certain, that there was only one real Prince of Peace, the one God providing for, to save you and I from our sins, to give you life and to provide you with home. Let me pray with you.